Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. More than 60 years later, the Academy Award-winning movie Giant still feels as fresh and modern as it did during the Eisenhower years, and with its exploration of big progressive themes of race, gender, class, money, power, and celebrity, well, you know, everything old is new again as we continue to wrangle with many of those same issues today. I think all of those same issues today. So we want to thank Don Graham for coming here today on Conversations on iHeb Radio with me, Charlie Dyer. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. Well, the book is called Giant, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Edna Ferber, and the Making of a Legendary American Film. And Don is a professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a writer at large with Texas Monthly Magazine and received the Carr P. Collins Prize for Best Nonfiction Book of the Year, awarded by the Texas Institute of Letters. Well, Don, you've said that you could have written this book 30 years ago. So talk about what drew you to Giant and, and what keeps you coming back to it over and over again over the years. The first time I saw it, I was 16 years old, and I saw it right here in Dallas, Texas, where I am right now, at the uh, Majestic Theater. And I was just kind of blown away by the size and scope of it. I didn't know anything about how movies were made. I didn't even know it had been made in Texas. But I loved the movie, and I particularly uh, adapted a few of James Dean's uh, sayings and and one or two of his gestures uh, as a teenager. Anyway... Thirty years later, I noticed uh, in the press that they were having a 30th anniversary of Giant out in Marfa. So my wife and I drove out there, and we actually wound up spending three nights on the ranch. And the uh, remains of the house were just barely still standing, and the house would eventually collapse. Uh, that false front house, that's an iconic image in American cinema. Uh, and so we were out there in the desert uh where it was filmed, and that was exciting. I don't know why I didn't write the book then, but the fact is I was working on another book. Then in 1996, a guy made a um, documentary, a very good one, called Return to Giant, and I was a talking head in that. So you'd think, well, maybe I, it would have occurred to me then to write the book, but it didn't. Finally, uh, around 2010 or 11, somewhere around there, I started putting the film in a course that I'd been teaching forever called Life and Literature of the Southwest. And I was uh, surprised and quite uh, pleased at the students' response because they connected with the kinds of things that uh, animate uh, millennials today, uh, questions about race and uh, progressive attitudes towards women, feminism. The film seemed very timely to this audience, so I thought, well, it is time to write this book and try to track it all down and see how it happened. And certainly, uh, you know, we can look back to uh, movies of that era in the 1950s and see them in, a, you know, in a time capsule, and they're of that time and of that place, and that's all they are. But Giant just it it seems so much broader, even though it's you know, in a way, a kind of pictorial history lesson in in an attempt <laughs> as a history right. lesson. But it seems right. broader than that, than just oh, it's this little snapshot of what the 1950s were like. Yeah, it does, and it it uh, I think that's due uh, both to the novel, which was very negative about Texas, but particularly to George Stevens' vision, the director, in that he really wanted to. He'd been much affected in a negative way by his experiences in World War II, the death camps, Dachau, and all. That. He filmed all that stuff. Uh, as a matter of fact, his films were used in the Nuremberg trials as evidence of Nazi horrors. 
But uh, he, was, he himself was personally affected, and he really wanted to write a film about, uh, I mean, to make a film uh, that would show uh, modern America. And he thought the state of Texas was in some ways the most representative state because it was perceived as being this incredibly wealthy place. And uh, it had a lot of history and a lot of what people would call, I guess, arrogance and so on. And it had this big racial problem that basically most people in the U.S. didn't know anything about. They knew all about the uh, uh, problems with civil rights and the lack of civil rights for um, African Americans, but they didn't really know much about, unless they lived in certain parts of Texas or maybe the Southwest, they didn't know much about the Mexican American experience. And he was quite struck by that, and he wanted to make a film that would kind of, as he said, rub Texans' noses in it. But the funny thing about it, Texans hated the the novel, basically. The reviewers hated it. Uh, but everybody in Texas seemed to love the movie. And a lot of Texans sort of learned something about their state from watching this. It was both a celebration and a timely and humane critique of something that the state needed to do, to do a better job with. Well, let's talk a little bit about the quote-unquote cast of characters here as you started there. And, and, and uh, George Stevens and Edna Ferber are not really household names today. No, but, they're, uh, but no of, they're not. But of course, all those stars of Giant you know, are. In, right. and, and Edna and George were really at the top of their game in the 1950s. So, so tell us, you know, George was just coming off a, a place in the sun, and Edna was a really successful novelist. So set the scene as these two people came together to make this movie. They did something kind of unusual. They, along with the third guy, Henry Ginsburg, who's kind of a administrative type, he was a producer, they formed their own independent production company called Giant Inc., and... Uh, they set out to make make a film of her book, and Ferber was very protective of her book, and she didn't want it, you know, turned into a musical or something. Ferber, by the way, had an amazing record. There were 23 movies made from her books, an amazing record. So she was pretty, she was well known in Hollywood. Anyway, she and Stevens, Stevens uh, got two other guys, and they started working on the script. And at some point, he actually asked Ferber to come out to L.A and write a script over the summer, and she did. He wound up not using it, but I think he just wanted to involve her and to see what she could come up with. Uh, then during the making of the film, Ferber, well, let me just say, the, the major thing that, that Stevens did, he knew that Texans hated the film, I mean, hated the novel, and so he set out on a campaign to make Texans uh, uh, think think differently about uh, this, this, uh, this uh, uh, novel. Or uh, through his film, and what he did was, he he studied Texas, read a lot of books, and he decided to film in Texas, which was a pretty radical idea uh, for a, a film of that scale and that expense. And he opened up the set so that visitors from all over Texas could come and watch the stars at work, and journalists from all over the country. So it was a brilliant strategy of isolating this star cast out there in the middle of nowhere and then keeping them there and capturing all of that great vistas, uh, the great vistas of far west Texas, the uh, Chihuahua Desert, et cetera, et cetera. St. Stevens just loved to get away from Hollywood so he wouldn't be bugged by Jack Warner and people like that. If they were going to reach him, they had to do it by telegram, basically, because they weren't about to leave L.A. and go to Texas. Anyway... Ferber, during the course of the film, she would send letters to, to Stevens saying, I, you know, I don't like this scene. Uh, 
you need to change this dialogue, et cetera. And he mostly ignored her because she was kind of protective about her book. And and one of the interesting things to me is she was never really on board with Elizabeth Taylor, I don't think. Well, she actually wrote about real-life people like uh, Robert Kleberg, who owned the, the big giant King Ranch there, and, exactly. and, and Glenn McCarthy, who was uh, right. a really famous wildcatter in Texas history, and he built the, the Grand Shamrock Hotel. So talk about the importance of her fictionalizing these really well-known uh, real-life Texans in, in Giant. Well, it was, uh, Warner Brothers was extremely worried about that because it was transparently obvious that her, her, the main ranch, Riata, in her book was a version of King Ranch. She had visited King Ranch and they had not got along at all. She and Kleberg did not hit it off. Uh, he thought she was an arrogant woman from New York and he didn't want her to have anything to do with writing a, a book. But of course, she could, writing fiction, she could do whatever she wanted. And uh, uh, she also apparently met Glenn McCarthy, but she would have regarded him as is you know uncouth and just an all man who who was vulgar and had built a vulgar hotel and so on. So she was really basically an East Coast snob, although she was from the Midwest. And she had this she she disliked Texas for two huge reasons. She thought the state was too big and Texas couldn't do anything about that, and she thought it was too rich. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, what uh, uh, Stevens tried to do was to try to tone all that down. And to make it into a, a, I think, a much more successful narrative than Ferber's book. Ferber's book never gives Texas Texas a break, and the character played by Rock Hudson, the rancher, he never goes through any kind of moral awakening as to his racism. He never really changes at all in the novel. So the novel is kind of pessimistic, really. It just says, "Well, Texas is always going to be like this. It's never going to change." Stevens thought differently. He wanted to project an image of uh, transformation on Rock Hudson's part. We certainly see that evolution uh, in the movie, and I do encourage people to to look at Giant because it's available. That's the great thing about our technology these days with all of the content up there in places like Amazon Prime, where I literally watched this recently so that we could talk about the interview and have the movie fresh in my mind and the beautiful azure blue skies and you know that uh, just it's a really intensely uh, visual and visceral movie aside from the script itself and he, he made George made a lot of decisions uh, along the way and you mentioned him uh, wanting to depict the horrors of the war that he witnessed and he included you know a scene a, a very simple scene in a way of a soldier's body coming home to be buried and that actually almost was ended up on the cutting room floor. So why would the studio not want people to see that, and why was George so adamant that it stay in the movie? Well, the studio was really just worried about the length. They were really concerned. Uh, uh, at one point, it was three hours and 30 minutes, and they kept urging him to cut stuff. Some of the stuff they wanted cut for political reasons. I think the whole... The, the beautiful scene of his of Angel's return from the war, his body, his remains being brought back, and the funeral, it, it's almost like a silent movie. It's absolutely beautifully done. But they just thought, well, this is a, immaterial to the rest of the, and it's not. It's quite relevant. But they just thought, we've got to cut this. Audience aren't going to sit through this. And one of the things Stevens wanted to do, he, he was, everybody in Hollywood was battling the little black box, the TV, 
and the and the encroachment of television on the fans' attention and on their money because uh, they could stay home and, and watch movies on TV, and they were all worried about that. And Stevens wanted he knew that, and he wanted to make to give people an experience so that when they went to the movies, they had really gone to the movies. They hadn't gone just an hour and a half something they could have seen on TV. So that was part of that splendor that he wanted to create, uh, visual splendor. Uh, and he wanted it to be authentic, which cost Warners a lot of money because they could have filmed this in California, but it wouldn't have looked like Texas. So he was always after that authenticity and uh, trying to get it get it exactly right. And uh, that scene... Uh, uh, that was one of a number of little. Of, that was the longest segment that they wanted cut. But Stevens wouldn't do it. He wanted it in there because he knew the emotion felt by families that saw four or five years after the end of World War II these cargo ships coming into San Francisco Harbor with these coffins uh, on the front of the ship. These were boys who died at. Uh, at Pearl Harbor, and they didn't get sent back to the States till 1947. So the war just kept impacting, in his mind, America and American life. Eavesdropping is welcome on the desert's best conversations with Charlie Dyer. We're discussing Don Graham's new book, Giant, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Edna Ferber, and the making of a legendary film. George Stevens really had his hands full with the casting of that trio of Rock, Elizabeth, and James, who actually threatened to take over the film. I can only imagine I've seen some uh, sort of fictional movies about James Dean and what a handful he was. So do you think that he really had any idea what he was dealing with, with all the drama uh, of this trio and, and how much trouble they were going to be? No, I don't. I don't know if he knew how much trouble James Dean was going to be. Stevens was a very confident guy. He had already worked with Elizabeth Taylor back in '51 uh, for a great film called *A Place in the Sun*, and uh, Rock Hudson. He just kind of pulled out of nowhere. Uh, Hudson was beginning to make his breakout. He'd made a film called *Magnificent Obsession*, which a lot of women liked. It was kind of weepy melodrama film, and that was in 1954. But this was the biggest film that Rock Hudson would ever be cast in, uh, and the greatest, and Rock Hudson knew it. James Dean was the hottest thing in Warner Brothers, and he just kind of wormed his way into the uh, into the film. And uh, I don't know what I was going to say. Stevens was a very confident director. He was going to run the show, uh, and he did, but he had lots of problems with James Dean. He really had problems with in one way or another with all of them, but mainly James Dean. And he was one of those people who uh, was famously known to actually like that in a way. You know, that was part of his image as, as a publicity, you know, thing that, you know, oh, I don't really like you, but come here. No, I don't like you, but come here. He had that weird thing with the press. Oh, James Dean had a total love affair, love-hate affair with the press, and he was... Uh, he was obsessed with being photographed, and so he was always inserting himself into into to, uh, photographers' work. One, in one case, a uh, photographer was there not concentrating on Dean. He was fo- photographing Elizabeth Taylor out in Martha, and James Dean just picked her up and turned her upside down. And <laughs> Stevens, was, Stevens didn't get mad at Dean for doing that. Elizabeth Taylor got mad. She said, at least I was wearing my you know underwear. But at any rate, Stevens then rebuked uh, Elizabeth Taylor for for uh, 
not stopping this for for preventing this from happening. But Dean, Dean was uh, he was a very very um, active kind of fellow. You couldn't if he set out to do something, he was pretty much going to do it. Hudson hated him uh, for various reasons, and uh, but but curiously, Elizabeth Taylor was became best friends with Rock Hudson and best friends with James Dean. She was able to mediate between these two personalities who did not like each other. Well, and it certainly can't be uh, left unsaid that uh, both of them being basically gay guys, there was a, you know, I'm sure she knew she wasn't going to deal with some of the issues that she would deal with some of her other uh, male co-stars on other movies who wanted in her pants. Exactly. They saw saw in her a maternal figure. James Dean was always looking for a woman, an older woman, although she wasn't older, she was a year younger than him, always looking for a woman to tell his his uh, childhood story to. Yeah, he was bi. Well, it's, it's a really surprisingly progressive view of feminism and racial issues for our 21st century eyes to be watching this and thinking this is more than 60 years ago. So talk a bit about how how the the lasting impact of those kinds of things has had, you know, not only on audiences over the years as the movie has been re-released, but as right. we look back at, you know, in a, in a critical way. A lot of Texans, for example, saw the film and they never had really thought about this uh, this uh, uh, treatment of Mexicans, uh, Mexican-American citizens in this way, because uh, that population lived primarily in South Texas, San Antonio, and West Texas on the ranches. And so people like living in Dallas, for example, they, they had very little awareness of, of this problem. Uh, but the rest of America, seeing it, could think, could identify with that sign, the sign that's so important in the diner scene, the sign that says we refuse the right to reserve, uh, uh, to serve anybody or whatever. You know the sign, mm-hmm. the, the thing that was used to thwart civil rights for blacks. And uh, that court decision came out in 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. The film is shot in 1955, and I'm certain that that, well, that sign is in the diner, and that sign meant a lot to, to uh, George Stevens, and that's one of the targets he had. Uh, Edna Ferber kept sending him letters and uh, enclosures from stories uh, in Texas and elsewhere of Mexican-Americans or blacks being excluded from uh, dining uh, diners and, and uh, restaurants and movies and so on. So discrimination, racial discrimination, was really at the heart of Stevens and Edna Ferber's vision of something that they saw in Texas. They could have seen it, obviously, in the South, et cetera, but Texas, Texas just was one of those states then and now that seems sort of more important than a lot of other states. I know that makes people mad that don't live in Texas, but anyway... It's just, it's seen as a kind of bellwether of the nation a lot of times. We have this image of Texas as being bigger than life, and you certainly see that in that that movie. And movies have so much power, especially ones that are so well-situated with a giant cast of celebrities and great actors as that one was. So talk about how Giant played its role in the way we see Texas and the culture of Texas and the myth of Texas as now 60 years later. And in this movie, again, it just, it still feels fresh today when you watch it. 
It does, and I, I think what Ferber did, what no Texas rider had quite done up to that time, in that she was looking at Texas in a, in a big picture sense, and she saw that ranching and oil were two of these really, really uh, important industries, uh, and there were a lot of stories and mythology connected with them. Uh, the whole business of the cattle drive era, John Wayne's movies like Red River, there was all that history of Texas as a western state, and then there was the drama of the uh, wildcatters coming in and the tremendous amount of wealth coming out of Texas from the uh, discovery of oil and, and so on. And around 1950, uh, which is about the time the movie ends, it runs from 1925 to 1950 roughly, um, oil has, has become the dominant uh, source of income in the Lone Star State. Now, I will tell you this, growing up in Dallas, I grew up uh, early in my early years on a cotton farm, and giants seemed to people like myself, who we weren't part of the myth, really. We were closer to the Old South because of cotton and all, all that that implies. And it was just hard farm work. But ranching had a romance about it, and the great wealth of somebody like uh, Glenn McCarthy. There was a great deal of... Um, romance about that. And these figures like King Ranch is still a powerful mythic force in Texas life. And the oil business, we don't have any Glenn McCarthy's around right now, but it's all corporate stuff now. But all of that's very colorful history uh, and intriguing. And so Texans could sort of go see that film and see the place where they live kind of writ large in very epic terms. And at the same time, they could they could identify on a human level with what's going on and a moral level with the issues that the film raises. So the film was both, in one sense, a glorification of Texas space, of Texas power, of Texas uh, history in a way, and also it was a critique. So it managed to achieve both things, which is a remarkable accomplishment. Well, Don Graham has been my guest today on Conversations with Charlie Dyer here on iHub Radio. The book is Giant, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Edna Ferber, and the making of a legendary American film. I encourage you to watch the movie and read the book together. Thank you so much for being here today on Conversations. Thanks a lot. You ask great questions. 